there's a three-letter word that grabs people's attention like no other word that I know, and that word is sex. Let's dive right in. Are we ready to have a candid conversation about sex? It's important that we do. I, I can't think of anything that is woven into more aspects of our culture than sex is. Entertainment, news, advertising, social media, gaming, medicine, mental health, literature, sports, politics, education. It might be easier to come up with a list of things that don't intersect. A research team, I looked this up this week, a research team handed clickers to a group of people. Because you know that adage, you know, the average person thinks about sex every seven seconds or whatever it is, right? They're like, no, let's actually put clickers in people's hands. So they put clickers in a bunch of people's hands, and it, there was a wide range, but, uh, but when they averaged it out, the average male in this study um, thought about sex at least 19 times a day, the average female at least 10. So, so putting all this together, we're constantly receiving messages that are sexually charged. It's something that most people think about multiple times a day. If we stay silent as a church, where will people hear all the rest of their messages from? From not church. So, let's have a conversation about sex. And the context for this particular conversation, if you're just tuning in, is we're in week five of an eight-part series on identity. Well, in week one, we explained that what we're going to do is we're going to anchor to the scriptures throughout this series. And as we worked our way through Psalm 139, we saw that the Bible declares every one of us is fearfully and wonderfully made. And we've seen in that scripture that we are seen, we are known, and we're loved by our Creator. In week two, we went back to the beginning. And in Genesis 1 and 2, we read about a God who formed us in His image, male and female. In week three, we looked at Genesis 3 in an event that we call the fall, where instead of placing our full trust in our creator, finding identity in him, humanity began to elevate other voices as more authoritative. And from that day forward, more and more people have been looking to themselves. They've been looking to lived experiences as the ultimate guide for right and wrong. And like that proverbial snowball that starts rolling down that hill and it starts picking up mass and it starts picking up momentum... Influencer after influencer after influencer and movement after movement has brought us to the place where we just assume that our self-assessments are accurate. We just assume that our inner selves are trustworthy. And we just assume that biblical boundaries, if they're placed, they're going to be obstacles for human happiness. We think we know who we are. We think we know what we want. And for a lot of people, sex is at the center of that the sexual identity as at the center of that. Sex has become inseparable from people's concepts, not only of identity, but of human flourishing. And it's not hyperbole to say that we have deified desire in our culture. It, it just feels wrong to go to somebody and tell them of any other kind of God who would say, if you want to follow me, take up your cross. It just feels wrong to say that to somebody. The title for today's teaching, if you downloaded the notes or saw the opening screen there, the title of today's teaching is Wild at Heart with an E. And that's not a a typo with the wild. It's wordplay. One of the historical figures that I came across as we're preparing for this series is a man named Oscar Wilde. I'm not going to give a big 
biography on him because he's just one of many, one of many voices who's not a fan of the kind of guardrails we're going to talk about tonight. In fact, he's not a fan, wouldn't be a fan of what the Bible has to say about sex. He's more likely to say, follow your heart than he would be to say, trust the Bible. So given this snowball has been rolling for thousands of years and it's been gathering so much mass, I am under no illusions that in my 30, 40 minutes here that I'm going to be able to deconstruct a worldview that Oscar Wilde and all these other people have been constructing for all these, these years. But it is my hope, it's my prayer that this is going to be helpful. If you let it, if you lean in, what I hope to do today is to contrast. I hope to contrast the way of Jesus with the way that our culture has been trending. I hope to make a contrast there, at least the way it's been trending since Genesis 3. And I want to invite you to perhaps, just perhaps, just maybe, consider that, that our hearts could use some help in this world. All right, let's get started. Um, there's a place to write this down. If you say yes to Jesus, what are you saying yes to? If you say yes to Jesus, what are you saying yes to? Jesus famously said, he said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me, he said. Jesus invites us to trust him completely. Completely. This is true when it comes to money. It's true when it comes to how we treat other people. It's true when it comes to how we approach power. And... It's true with sex and marriage. Today, we're going to look at something that Jesus said. And if it's hard for you to accept these things, you are in good company. As we're going to see in the text that we look at, even as disciples, we're not receptive to this. Now, you may not agree where Jesus lands, but could you at least be open to listening to his words? If you're watching at home, you can fast forward anything I say. Fast forward it. But if you could slow down and listen to the words that Jesus says, we'd be honored if, if you would do that. In fact, <laughs> I wrote it down much stronger down in my own notes. I said, I want to encourage you as strongly as I can. Would you listen to the words of Jesus? Just listen. Just listen. All right, if you have your Bible with you, please turn with me to Matthew 19. We're going to start with verse 1. If you don't have a Bible at home, there's a place where you can download a great free Bible app at Bible.com. All right, here we go. Uh, Matthew 19, let's actually do verses, start with verses 1 through 2. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. All right, this is a turning point in the book of Matthew. Literally, it's a turning point. Jesus had been ministering in Galilee, and this is the point in Matthew where he turns his face towards Jerusalem and begins heading there. And what was waiting for Jesus in Jerusalem? He knew what was waiting for him in Jerusalem. He knew that he'd be crucified. He knew he'd be killed in Jerusalem. Jesus was about to model the ultimate expression of faith in a God by laying down his life. And along the way, you're going to see this in these passages we look at, along the way he provides teaching that emphasize the upside-down, counter-cultural way of the cross. Before we finish this chapter, the disciples are going to push back. Before we finish this chapter, there's going to be a rich young man, he walks away, turns his back on Jesus. All right, let's go continue on with this. Verse 3. 
Verse 3 says, And the Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Let's talk about this. Last week, do you remember what Jesus said when he sent out his disciples? He said, among other things, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Well, here we got some wolves in sheep's clothing because they're coming up to Jesus and they're trying to trap him. They're trying to trap him. They already know his statement if they had been listening, at least to, to those around him, the buzz around him. You can find it yourself. It's in Matthew. Matthew 5, 31 through 32. We already got Jesus' statement on marriage and divorce. These wolves in sheep's clothing, they're not looking for answers. They're trying to set a trap. And they're doing this through a conversation about, or question about divorce. Divorce has always been contentious. And in that time and in that place, people were divided specifically over how do you interpret Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. Imagine that. People not agreeing on scripture. Can you even fathom that? (laughs) There had been an influencer named Shammai. And what he did is he argued that Deuteronomy 24 only allowed for divorce if a spouse had been unfaithful. And a lot of people sided with him. There was another influencer named Hillel who, fun fact, was the grandfather of one of the apostles Paul's teachers back when Paul used to be a Pharisee. Hillel's followers believed that Deuteronomy 24 allowed a good husband to divorce his wife for a whole wide range of reasons. In fact, as, as this teaching went on, it got to the point where people believed you can divorce her if she's not a good cook. You can divorce her, <laughs> seriously, not a good cook. And, or if you found someone more attractive later. You know, perfect, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, the Pharisees, they're like, Jesus, choose. Which side are you on? Which of these two positions are you going to take? You know, because they figured out, well, hey, at least we'll have half of the crowd mad at him, no matter what he says, right? Well, rather than just starting with the scrimmage, Jesus took him back to the beginning. This is what it says in verses 4 through 6. This is, again, this is how Jesus approaches this question, this difficult question. He answered, Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, therefore, and he's quoting scripture now, quoting Genesis, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus took them back to where it all started. He's quoting here from Genesis 1, Genesis 2. Jesus models an important principle here, one that we try to follow as a church. And the principle is that Scripture helps us interpret Scripture. If you want to understand Deuteronomy, read Genesis. If you want to understand Leviticus, read Genesis. If you want to understand Romans, if you want to understand 1 Corinthians, you want to understand 1 Timothy, read Genesis. There's so much that's revealed in those verses that Jesus quotes from. From Genesis, there was design and intent when God created both men and women. There's more to the union that's described there than just a covenant between two people. God himself is knitting them together. And this new family that's formed is now the primary human relationship. As Jesus begins to affirm the creator's intent instead of affirming cultural norms, one of the things we're going to see, there's almost immediate resistance As soon as Jesus is not saying, I'm going to frame this debate the way you're framing it, I'm going to take it back to the beginning, I'm going to take it back to Scripture, immediate resistance. Take a look at this. Verse 7. They answered him. Well, 
Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? They attempted to use the scripture too. And I'm not going to set my Bible down right now because Jesus corrects them right away. Verse, verse 8. He said to them, it's because of your hardness of heart that Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. According to one of my sources, the majority of influencers, Jewish influencers in Jesus' day, they were actually teaching, if there is an affair, you must get divorced. You must get divorced. If your spouse cheat on you, that's your option. Can religious people ever get things wrong? No. <laughs> we have everybody saying yes, except our sarcastic brother in the front here saying no. Yes, religious people get things wrong all the time. <laughs> Jesus provides a subtle but huge distinction here. He says, Moses didn't command. Moses permitted. That's a huge distinction. Moses allowed for a concession in a fallen world. This is one example of God empowering the person who had been hurt. This is such an important distinction. The one who remained faithful is empowered. The one who remained faithful can walk away. The one who remained faithful can choose if they want to stay. The person who was harmed is the one who's empowered. They get to make that choice. Jesus continues with these strong words, picking up with verse 9. He says, And I tell you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The word that's translated here is sexual immorality. It's a Greek word that's, um, that uh, is pornea, the Greek word pornea. Now, I'm not a linguist, but if I understand correctly, pornea is a word that originally was associated with prostitution and transactions. And then in Scripture, the way that word is used, it refers to sexual practices that are outside of the boundaries that God has set in place. So in Scripture, when we come across that word that's translated in many, tra many translations of sexual morality, it's a word that means you're stepping outside of the boundaries that God's put in place. Let's hit pause right here and connect some dots because we've the whole lot of information's come at us. If you say yes to the way of Jesus, what are you saying yes to? I invite you to write this down. Scripture calls us to a surrendered sexuality, a surrendered sexuality that's designed to be protective and prophetic. Scripture calls us to a surrendered sexuality that's designed to be protective and prophetic. Jesus is casting a vision here. He's casting a vision for a sexual ethic that is anchored to our creator's intent. One man, one woman, forming a new family, becoming as one, and then staying together except for the most extreme of circumstances. And here's what happens as you continue to read in Scripture. It goes further than that. It goes further than that. Elsewhere, Jesus says, don't even be looking at somebody who you're not married to in a lustful way. Because it's, it starts in the heart. Elsewhere, Scripture says, among you, among you believers, there shouldn't even be a hint, not even a hint of pornea. Elsewhere, the Scripture says, flee. Flee sexual immorality, it says. Well, as I mentioned earlier, if you find yourself pushing back to these teachings, you know, with these instructions, you're in good company. Because the disciples push back. Take a look at this. Verses 10 through 11. These are his disciples. They've been walking with him for three years. The disciples said to him, well, if this is such the case of a man and his wife, 
it's better not to get married. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it's given. This is a hard teaching. (laughs) Especially with these guys. They're basically saying, you mean I need to remain committed to my wife if I'd rather move on? This is one of several places where Jesus raises the bar when it comes to protecting women in particular. We could, we could spend the whole rest of our time just talking about that. One of several places where Jesus protects women. And those protections came at the cost of men, in this case, having limits placed on their desires. Limits that they didn't agree with. If you're taking notes, I invite you to write this down. The cost of authentic discipleship has always seemed too high, even to disciples. That is such a key point. The cost to discipleship has always seemed too high even to disciples. And this isn't just true when it comes to sex. I want to invite you to read the rest of this chapter. There's a, there's a little teaching on children. And then right after that, there's this teaching that we often call the rich young ruler. Just a few verses later, Jesus extends an invitation to a wealthy man. He says, you want to be perfect? Sell everything you've got, give it to the poor, and follow me. And the man decided, I'd rather keep my worldly possessions than take you up on that offer. And it's interesting, the scripture says he went away filled with sorrow, for he had great wealth. Something in him knew, that's what I want, but I can't part with what I also want. And so he went with that. Today, with all that is within me, I want to caution you against making that same mistake that that rich young ruler did. I can't think of anything, anything that I've seen cause greater pain in people than when we step outside these guardrails, these instructions that God has placed when it comes to sex. I can't think of anything. Let's take this conversation now to another level. Can we be honest? Can we be honest? Pornea is highly problematic. Highly problematic. Now, I don't personally know anybody who says there should be no boundaries when it comes to sexuality. I don't know anybody who's intellectually honest who says there should be no boundaries. Let me give you an example. If you're new to Emmanuel, if you're just tuning in, if you're new to Emmanuel, we have a special relationship with a children's home in Juarez, Mexico. And they just sent out their latest newsletter. A lot of us probably received it if you sponsor Chalice. see a lot of people nodding here. The stories are tragic. They, I mean, the good news is they just had 40 new kids. 40 new kids have been receiving at home. The hard part is every kid has a story, and some of these stories are really tragic. And some of the most tragic of all the stories are when people have crossed outside of those boundaries that God put in place when it comes to sexuality. Some of the stories of these kids, girls, boys, they've been sexually exploited by adults, and they're dealing with that. There's a girl whose mom struggles to love her because that girl was conceived in a rape. These are real kids at the home right now. You've got brothers there who are bullied because their mom works as a prostitute to make sure she can provide for them, or at least had been doing that. I was on a Zoom call right not long before this letter got mailed with Patel Lopez and her team. Many of you met Patel either down there in Juarez or when she came up to visit us in the summer. Well, as I'm on this Zoom call, they described 
how so many of these new kids who've been coming, she describes what happens when they get the kids for the first time and they're, they're helping them get moved in. And the first time those kids are alone in a room with an adult. And she said they start to do this. Because when they get alone with adults, their experience has been, I get hurt when that happens. So, can we all agree that there should be some boundaries, right? There should be some boundaries. If you don't have any boundaries around sexuality, people get hurt. Okay, so, if we can all agree there's boundaries, where do you put them? And who decides? Who knows what's best? That's what we're talking about today. May I present to you for your consideration that if there is a creator, that that creator knows more than the rest of us where those boundaries should go. That's why we feel the way we do about these these instructions, these guidelines. And may I also present to you for your consideration, the further you drift, and I would encourage you to really reflect on this, the further you drift from these boundaries and instructions that we see in Scripture, the further you drift away from these, the more you begin to see people experiencing insecurity, anxiety, regret, shame, pain, and brokenness. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. We have bodies that are designed to work certain ways and not in other ways. We've got chemicals in our bodies that are designed to bond during intimate moments. We are social and emotional beings. Nothing complicates our lives, like the complexities associated with sexual complexities. Now, there's one level of disharmony that we experience in loving, consensual sexual relationships that are outside of a covenant of marriage. There's one level of complexity if it's consensual. There's another level of risk and disharmony when consensual becomes promiscuous, now you start to see more pain, more disharmony. And not just for yourself, but that begins to affect other people more and more and more, especially if there's kids involved. And then when there's not consent, when there's not consent, we step out of these boundaries. When there's neglect or abuse or betrayal, when an adult harms a child, I don't know of anything that wounds deeper. The further we drift from our creator's intent, the more pain and brokenness that we see. Scripture says we've got an enemy. He comes to steal. He comes to kill. He comes to destroy. What better way to do that? What better way to do that than to convince people, do what's right in your own eyes when it comes to sexuality? What better way to do that? How many of you are familiar with the word eros, the Greek word eros? It's a Greek word that we get our word erotic from. Here's a quote by C.S. Lewis. I think this is worth reflecting on. So much so we wrote it in your notes. You could download those from from our webpage there. Eros ceases to be a devil only when it ceases to be a God. Can I get an amen to that? Now it might take five or six minutes for us to go, okay, what, what? I think I get it. But yeah, it's deep. And is there anyone else in this room or wherever you are who agrees with this next slide, can we be honest? Our hearts need help. Can I get an amen to that? Our hearts need help. My job takes me behind the curtain of people's lives. And our pastors here at Emmanuel 
We get made aware of heartbreaking situations on a weekly basis for sure, but often on a daily basis. The older I get, the more evidence I see, our hearts are not reliable guides. Our hearts could use some help. In Bible time, the word or words that we translate as heart, it refers to more than emotions. The, the word or words we, we, we find that are translated as heart, it refers to our inner self. And if you want an eye-opening study, investigate what Scripture says about the heart and what happens if we trust it without questioning it. At Emmanuel, we believe our Creator's guidance and instruction regarding sex it is both prophetic and protective. Let's quickly start with the protective. Our Creator's instructions were designed to protect us from the consequences of sexual immorality, but it's more than that. It's also prophetic. The covenant of Christian marriage was designed to tell the gospel story. The Bible opens with the union of two people made for each other, and it closes with our Savior returning for His bride, the church. The way that wives are to honor their husbands, it's meant to show the world what does it look like to honor Christ. The way that husbands love their wives, it's meant to show what it looks like for Christ to lay down His life for the church. When the world sees us keeping our covenant with one another, to have and to hold from this day forward, better or worth, worth, richer or poor, sickness and in health, till death do us part, people can see, okay, this is what it looks like to walk by faith. And this is mind-boggling. Through the marriage and union of men and women, eternal beings are conceived who have their own image but also bear the image of their parents like Genesis 1. This chapter that we've been looking at, it doesn't end with this teaching about marriage and sex. There's a powerful teaching here that this part, this pericope it's called, ends with. It's talking about singleness and talks about celibacy. Take a look at this. One last time, we'll go back to our text. Verse 12. It says, For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. It's really interesting that Jesus puts that there. And it is so loaded. I wish we had more time. Here's the gist. The gist is this. There are some for whom sex and marriage and having children, it's not part of their story at least not yet, or at least not in the ways that we've often idolized and deified in church culture. If the Bible addresses intersex, next week we're going to talk about gender specifically, if the Bible addresses intersex anywhere, it might be right here, where it says there are some that were born that way. There's some that are born this way. They were unable to have children from birth. And there are others who've had that taken away from you, the scripture says. If that's you, one of the resources we recommend, Preston Sprinkle, his book Embodied, does an excellent job of describing your future hope in chapters 6 and 7 of Embodied. Now, Jesus also says, there are those who choose to abstain from sex and marriage for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. In fact, who modeled that himself? Yeah, Paul too, that's right. And Jesus, our model... For human flourishing, let us never forget this. He was single, and he, to, he chose to abstain. And over the years, 
I have had the honor of knowing countless people, countless people who are following Jesus' example. They made a commitment. We are going to model this kind of Christ-like commitment to God, our Father. Our relationship with our Father is more important than our desire to have sex outside of the boundaries that he set. And in our culture, there are not many things you can do to this world to demonstrate you've got a higher commitment to God than that. Not in this culture. Over the course of preparing for this series, and in another series we did many years ago, I've also come across multiple inspiring testimonies of men and women who have a same-sex attraction. And they've come to a place, they believe, for me to act on these desires is to act outside and to step outside of these instructions and boundaries and guidelines that God has put in place. And what we thought was really important is not for us just to tell you those stories, but to give you those firsthand accounts. We would love for you to listen to their voices, to their stories. We put three of them on our, on our website, that identityseries.org. We've got three books there, two by women, one by a man. And we think it's important. Listen to their perspective on this. Why are they choosing not to step outside of God's boundaries, the ones we see in the scriptures? And on Thursday, this coming Thursday right here at the studio, we're going to explore the passages that these individuals would say prevent them in good conscience from from acting on those same-sex desires. And these are the same passages that prevent Emmanuel's pastors in good conscience from officiating a same-sex marriage. Because we trust our Creator, because we love you, This Thursday, in addition to Genesis 1 and 2, we're going to look at Genesis 19 in combination with Jude 7, Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Timothy 1. Now, one of the things that I noticed in Jackie Hill Perry's book, Rachel Gilson's book, two of the books you recommend there, I I, I noticed their tone. Their tone. They're honest. They say it's hard. They say it is hard for us to have these desires that we feel we can't act on. But their overall tone? Wow. While it's honest about the struggles, their tone reflects more hope than I've seen in in most Christians who are not carrying the extra weight that they're carrying as they're carrying their cross. These women, they love and they trust Jesus. Let me give you a small sampling. Rachel Gilson writes this. She goes, what if... What if it's not God who needs saving from us? Meaning, maybe we should stop talking about God's guidance and his instructions like they're obstacles to human happiness. Jesus, she goes on to say, Jesus really more beautiful, more worthy, more satisfying than anything else. Same-sex attracted believers. Remember, this is coming from a same-sex attracted position. Assaulted as we are from the right and the left, We need to taste and see that God is good. For people like me who experience same-sex attraction, the world begs us to believe that our authentic selves are only found in giving in. It promises hero status if we submit to our attractions. Our desires whisper like a serpent in a garden that there is no death in going against God's word. This serpentine tongue drawing us towards sin speaks a native language to each one of us. In Christ... I have the power and the obligation to say no to temptation and to say yes to God. This is why we put those voices there, for you to listen and hear 
and reflect on them. Which brings me to this. What if Rachel's right? What if God's reputation doesn't need saving? What if it's true? What if it's true that our hearts can lead us so far away from God that we become right in our own eyes, that we become blinded to the truth? What if it's true that we're lost and we need help finding our way home? I ask this question of my fellow believers here, those of you who are gathered. Imagine how an authentic Christian community would contrast with culture. Imagine how different we'd look. An authentically Christian community. Imagine how different we'd look from this culture. At a time when our culture is experiencing record levels of brokenness related to walking away from our creator's guidance and instructions for healthy sexuality, what if among us, more and more people found here is a safe place to start again? What if? What if you've been hurt? What if you're carrying the guilt and shame of the past? What if this could be a place there's no judgment, there is a welcome home? What if among us, people saw, we're trying to take our creator's instructions and guidance seriously. We're doing the best we can to treat each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're doing our best to protect vulnerable people who others would harm. And and also, advocate on their behalf? What if among us, we didn't treat sex and marriage as an idol? What if this was a place where we affirmed and celebrated people who were choosing to abstain for the sake of the kingdom? What if among us, we were doing our best by God's grace from this day forward to honor our marriage vows, to avoid even a hint of sexual immorality? And what if every kid being born into our community was born into a loving home with a father and a mother, or, if that's not possible, we're surrounded by father figures and mother figures. It is my sincere hope at Emmanuel that all of us will pursue this. If you call Emmanuel home, please write this down. Please live this out. At Emmanuel, we don't single people out. We invite everyone into a family that seeks to honor and trust our Father in every area of life. Can I get an amen to this? At ECC, we're going to invite every person to seek God's presence, to seek God's guidance in every area of life. It would be inconsistent. I would argue it would be unloving for us to say that sexual identity, because it, you just can't go there, for it would be inconsistent, it would be unloving to say, this is the one area that we're going to say, you don't have to listen to God's guidance. We're going to be consistent. We're going to invite everybody to surrender our full selves to our creator. Let me close with this true story. Several years ago, I was invited to lunch with a group of pastors. This was a collection of shepherds with beautiful, loving hearts. Did everyone hear that? Beautiful, loving hearts. I could see every one of them felt the weight of how our denomination is so divided over sexual boundaries. It it just hurt. As the conversation went on, it became clear, though, that the prevailing view around the table was that we as church leaders should side with the cultural narratives. 
instead of the perspective that I just shared with you when it came to same-sex marriage. So I'm listening, trying to understand, and I'm just quiet. And eventually, someone said, Chris, you've been quiet. What, what do you think about these things? So, <laughs> quick flare prayer, and with as much humility as I could muster, I said, my entrance into Christianity as an 18-year-old began with a cross. I had dreams, I had desires, I had a future that I realized was not compatible with God's call in my life. And (laughs) I was reading the room and I could tell that that was not a conversation that they wanted to have. So I, I just stopped there. If they had been open... Again, this is a group of pastors. If, if, if they had been open, I would have loved to open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians 7, which talks very candidly about marriage, about singleness, and how we forget our time is short. Our time is short. The world's needs are great. I would have challenged my colleagues. Hey, why, as, as, as pastors, why are we not also opening to passages like this? Why are we not also going to places like this? As one same-sex woman put it, she says, my attractions don't own me. Jesus does, she said. I, would, I, I could have asked them, what about the legacy of those who've gone before us? What about Jesus' original disciples? Literally laying down their lives. What about brothers and sisters throughout the ages and today who are forsaking fortunes, forsaking families, forsaking freedoms, and their very lives for the sake of the call. That's how chapter 19 ends, by the way, with Jesus saying that's going to happen. What about the teen that I've talked about before, I knew as a youth director? She told me, I feel called to be a missionary in such and such a country. I said, in that country, you know they kill Christians, right? She looks at me and she goes, and your point is? Oh, wow. Why are we not consistently inviting all people, regardless of orientation, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, forsaking its its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God? What if we set our sights on rediscovering that treasure that's worth everything to gain. I want to invite you right here, right now. If you're, well, if you're a follower of Jesus or something on your heart is pounding a little bit, to not only place your trust in Jesus, the one who said, if we lose our lives for his sake, we're going to find it, but to be people who with grace intact speak Jesus into a world that's experiencing such brokenness. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this group of people gathered here, the respect that they've just shown. I pray for my brothers and sisters, my friends, who are on the other side of this screen. Lord, I pray that anything that was said by me that was off, anything that was said by me that was unnecessarily provocative or not strong enough, Lord, I pray that my words would fade 
but that your words would come through. And not just your words, but your example. Lord, as we close with this song, we who are gathered here, those of us who who know you on the other side of these screens, and I pray that we would pray along with this song and that we'd speak Jesus into this world that you love so much and that we love as well. Lord, I also want to pray for those who this was a really hard message because they've been on the receiving end. If, if we're like the world, one in three of every women woman listening to this has been abused, one in four boys, men. We've been on the receiving end of unfaithfulness. We've been on the receiving end of so many things. Lord, I pray for extra grace for my brothers and sisters where that's part of their story. May they experience your peace, your love, your grace, your hope for the future. Lord, I also, even as I was about to close with that, I know this message has gone long, but I'd be remiss to not also say I pray for my brothers and sisters who are demonstrating that commitment of Jesus, that commitment of, Father, unless you bring that person into my life, I'm going to remain faithful to you until that day. I'm going to trust your boundaries. I'm going to set an example of a person who puts you first. Lord, fill them with your conviction, your love, your grace, and your hope that it's all worth it. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.